Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller. And in this programme, I'm talking to film historian Gary D. Rhodes about the birth of the American horror film. Gary told me that some fears we might think of as modern date back to the dawn of moving pictures. Very definitely, you can see the beginnings of uh, technological fears that could threaten perhaps not one person or even one town, but uh, that could destroy an entire country, an entire world for that matter. Gary's book is a fascinating exploration of the first two decades of cinema, the 20 years before the First World War, when everything was still new and untried. Horror didn't exist as a genre back then, of course, but it's astonishing to see how many of the themes and tropes that we're familiar with today had already been experimented with by 1915. Vampires, ghosts and possession, Jekyll and Hyde, Frankenstein and his monster, the mad scientist with his bubbling test tubes. Even the haunting that's unmasked as a con trick all made their first screen appearances in those first 20 years. Near the start of his book, Gary writes, I first saw a photograph from Edison's Frankenstein, in about 1977, when I was five years old, and staring at a children's book on the subject of Frankenstein in the cinema. The image haunted me. When we spoke a couple of weeks ago, I began by asking Gary to tell me more about the impression made on him by that still from Edison's 1910 film. Yes, well, I I think uh, the wonderful thing about that period in America was that the old horror films of, say, the 1930s and 40s were still appearing on television. There were only a few networks. So a lot of us as children at that time were seeing movies made decades before we were born. And with that came different children's books on the old horror characters. One of them at my local school library was on Frankenstein, and it had that picture, the one picture from Edison's version all the way back to 1910. And it really gripped my imagination in part because though I was just learning to read, it was described as a lost film. And that was an entirely new concept to me as well. So it kind of piqued my interest in film history and film research, even though I was that young, in a very obviously uh, low-level way. 
but that image too of Frank uh, of Edison's Frankenstein, which looks so very different than the image most of us have of the Frankenstein monster, because the makeup was so different than what would come later. I mean, would it be fair to describe what you're doing as being a little bit like cultural archaeology? I was thinking so much of the the filmed material that you are investigating has vanished, and things like the audience reactions are also very hard to to be precise about. So is it, does it have something in common with archaeology as opposed to, you know, literary scholarship where the texts are all laid out? Yes, it does. And in that way, I, I, th- I think it's quite different than, say, somebody doing research into uh, printed literature where, you know, the books may survive, obviously, in toto. The kinds of things I'm looking at, I do think they're a bit more akin to, say, an archaeologist that digs up a statue, but only part of it is there. That's, I think, the best metaphor for this kind of work on that period in film history, because if you pull up a statue that's maybe missing arms or so forth, you've discovered something, but only part of it, and the imagination must, uh, speculation, maybe guided, hopefully educated guesses, have to make you see what's missing, as well as what's survives. So with the period I'm looking at, uh, the period really before 1915, some of the films survive, some of them survive in incomplete form, most of them are lost. But of those that are lost, there are some synopses, there are sometimes images, still photographs, even though the film is missing. So it's a, it, it is a kind of an incomplete record and, and perhaps uh, a, maybe a fanciful uh, metaphor, but I think, I think archaeology is, is not dissimilar to what this kind of project is because i think yeah i think you say in the book i think you use the word refracted so you may not have a print of the film itself but you may be able to in some way grasp what it was like from as you say that you know the the billboards or the announcements or a review or some audience reaction or some influence Yes, it, it's, it's very much like that. So it's a bit of a kind of a parallax view of things. It's, it's, it's sometimes you get close to these missing films, but they're still also out of reach. Uh, so it's, uh, it, in some ways that makes for a fascinating research project. It also, uh, studying early cinema becomes uh, at, at times frustrating because you so eagerly, as I did as a, that five-year-old, so eagerly wanting to see Edison's Frankenstein, you're so eager to see that which so often you can't see. Sometimes we get lucky, though, and as time goes on, including with this and Frankenstein, these things are rediscovered. So, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. Now, the label horror, I guess, you could see as, as potentially misleading, couldn't you, if you're thinking about it with the, the knowledge from the vantage point of the, the early 21st century as we are. So what sort of caveats or what sort of warnings would you issue about approaching the horror films of, of about 120, 130 years ago, about removing our contemporary lenses? Yes, well, I think that's an excellent question because there has to be the caveat that, that the very term horror film or, or as we might often say in America, horror movie, those terms did not come into usage in Hollywood filmmaking, for example, until around 1931 and 1932. So everything that comes before, on the one hand, might appear like Edison's Frankenstein, ghost movies, movies that featuring devils or demons or witches or vampires. They might seem at first similar to what we think of as horror films, but, but they certainly didn't bear that label. 
And so that has the added caveat to go from there that, that audiences didn't understand all of the kinds of various films I talk about as being part of a single group in the way that we do generically genre with, with the horror film today. So it's, it's more of a, a kind of a, a lead up, an, a predecessor to what would become the horror film. And you're very good, I thought, about not patronising the past or to put it in a, in a more sophisticated way about not having a teleological kind of lens through which you view those films of the past. But that must always be a temptation as, as a culture to kind of look back and, and feel goodness, weren't they, weren't they quaint and unsophisticated? Yes, well, it, it, it is tempting, so much so that in the, your last question, I, I bit my tongue saying a phrase that I, uh, about to say the word proto-horror which also would suggest a kind of teleology that, that oh, the, the past, everything had to happen the way it happened. And, and, of course, we know that's not not the case. And so it is tempting. It is tempting to see all of this as, as a part of, a, of a, an inevitable lead-up to even the horror films that might be in the theater this summer. And, and obviously things uh, don't happen and unfold in such a neat way. So it's tempting, but, but that's where hopefully the, the kind of uh, scholarly training comes in to, you know, to beat back that temptation. So take us back, Gary, to 1895 and the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, which is a, a fascinating, and I would, I would guess, little-known work of early cinema. And tell me why you think this is such a, an interesting piece of film. Well, I, I'm very happy you brought that film up because however we might describe these films, even if we avoid the term horror film specifically in this case, it's certainly the first horrifying film in, in terms of its narrative and special effects. It was an American-made film by Edison. It was a film that, well, the title suggests really all the action that occurs. It's the beheading of, of Mary, Queen of Scots. It has a substitution splice in it, meaning right before the axe falls onto an actor, an actual living actor's neck, they stopped the camera. Everybody stayed in the same position, but then they brought in a dummy. So, of course, it was the dummy beheaded once the camera began filming again, though it looks like one relatively seamless action. The lead character gets beheaded, and the executioner then holds up the head for all to see, and that's the entire film. I think it's interesting because it's basically the first special effect of the type that would continue again, I think, in horror films that we might see this summer, you know, gore, splatter films. It was advertised, interestingly, as the first, quote, chamber of horrors film, meaning akin to the kind of waxworks exhibits that would have been known in the UK and uh, America at that time, waxworks exhibits that would have, through wax, recreated gruesome events, grisly events. I think what's even more interesting, though, or at least equally, is that if you didn't know the title, because the film is so short, you would have no real historical context. There's nothing in the imagery to suggest specifically that this is Mary, Queen of Scots, so much so that the film was sometimes advertised as simply execution or execution scene. So the emphasis is not at all on history. It's not at all on a historical narrative or really narrative at all. It's more of, uh, 
what in recent years, although again, this is we be we have to be cautious in using a modern term, but but it's it's not all unlike the what 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 sometimes was called torture porn with regard to everything from actual beheadings, Al-Qaeda or otherwise posted online, to, to the kinds of films like Eli Roth has made where the concentration is just on the uh, dismemberment of a, you know, of, a, of a human being or something in a fictional film in that case. So it's, it's basically just a grisly image created by a special effect for the, for the cinema. And that starts, I think, initiates a lot of what has followed. I thought it was really interesting what you said about there really being two trajectories as this genre develops into the 20th century. You talk about one trajectory being about the supernatural, sometimes trying to rationalise or engage with the supernatural, and the other about being presenting much more human forms of horror, you know, the, the slasher, the murderer, the stalker, or whatever. And this being, this Mary Queen of Scots has been kind of like the very first example of that second um, trend. Yes, and that trend, uh, I think, had in some cases deep roots in, in American literature and American news coverage of, of whether it was lynchings, hangings, public uh, hangings that people attended in, in say, the 19th uh, century. And that is, I think, one of those two, two key trends, and it continues in some ways uh, through the years into things like uh, serial killer films that are popular in Hollywood. I think it continues into things like a lot of the uh, kind of Halloween films, you know, uh, with Michael Myers and Jason and some of these characters where it's, the emphasis is largely on just simply stalking somebody and killing them, dating back to murder literature uh, that was popular in uh, as it's called in, in, in America in, in the 19th century. But then there, there's this other interesting tradition that is the supernatural, of course. I mean, we all grew up hearing ghost stories and so forth. But one that, that in America, I think, is very definitely tempered, certainly was in the period I'm looking at up until 1915, everything that came before it, tempered by a desire to rationalize it, in other words, that if there's a ghost story, the ghost at the end is exposed as a very much human or humans trying to play a trick on somebody else. I think the emphasis there, the influence, I should say, comes from, in part, the popularity of Anne Radcliffe's literature in America, with her propensity to expose the supernatural in her gothic literature as as being faked, you know, in essence, the, the, the fooling the reader until the last. I think it also comes, though, I, I date it really the beginnings of that in America to the Salem Witch Trials, that within a small number of years thereafter, the beginnings of the Enlightenment, further inquiries into those situations, very quickly people realized we made a big mistake. These people were not witches. And so this kind of desire to rationalize horror away, the supernatural away. To an extent, that still continues. When I was a child, I grew up watching, I imagine some people in the UK knew Scooby-Doo, you oh, know, absolutely. where, so, yeah, absolutely. So, yes. so you pull off the mask of the, yes. of the supernatural creature at the end, and that's the kind of, tra that's probably the quickest way to talk about the trajectory we're describing. You think it's a, a ghost or a vampire or something like that, the whole film, and then at the last, we realize it's just somebody in grease paint or spooky lighting. 
Well, Scooby-Doo, it's funny you should say that. Scooby-Doo was exactly what I thought of when I was reading about someone pretending to be a ghost in order to depress the real estate value of a property. And I thought, that's something I remember from my, from my childhood. And I was reading the book as a whole. I was struck by how many themes, subgenres were, were already present, you know, whether it's, whether it's mummies or Frankenstein or vampires or Jekyll and Hyde. They're already present in those first um, 15, 20 years. Yes, yes, it is. I mean, I think uh, the bulk of the book actually tries to go chapter by chapter exploring each one of those kinds of characters, uh, situations, plot lines, and it's staggering how uh, how similar many of them are to films that, yes, that, that we grew up watching or television shows, and in some cases, plot devices that continue, I think, even to this year to be recycled. Some of those, when they first appeared on screen, so many years ago, they had already had a history in American theater, American literature, short stories, American vaudeville, live acts, that, that in other words, some of these ideas were actually old when they first appeared on screen over 100 years ago. And what is fascinating, I think, is seeing seeing you take those themes and those, um, you know, literary or other visual genres and, and show how they are influencing the cinema, but then to see that being confronted with the potential of a new medium to do things, you know, things which may seem very unsophisticated to us today, like simply reversing the film so that a train appears like a ghost train travelling through the night, where in fact it's just, um, it's just a, a sort of quick te- technical reversal. But to see how the those cultural currents are then are being played with in this new technical medium. Yes, yes, exactly. I, I think the, the possibilities of a visual medium for horrifying imagery, certainly people began to explore that with photography. Even from the 1850s, faking spiritualist photographs, you know, a photographer faking it so that, without telling you, of course, as the customer, that it looked like, you know, maybe a dead relative was hovering spiritually above you. So, so there had been some experiments with, with photography that, that these kinds of new possibilities to old, horrifying tales of ghosts and so forth were there. But obviously, the moving picture added significantly, and, and your example of the train is a great one, to what had been tried in photography and still imagery, in other words. And that, again, takes me back to things like the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, where it, it would have appeared, and, and the few audience responses we have, it certainly did to audiences, look like to them somebody literally had lost their head in a, in, in a film, but the possibilities expanded greatly. I wanted to ask you about the figure of the mad scientist because he crops up again from the earliest days and he's going to make a, a comeback, if I can put it like that, in the 30s and 40s and become a, become a sort of manifestation of all sorts of worries about, about science there. But again, he's a figure who's, who's really right in there from the start. Yes, yes, he is. And, and I suppose, of course, in an earlier period, thanks to, to literature, and of course a lot of British literature is obviously influencing these films, as I talk about, you know, dating back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, now 200 years old, with some variations 
in America, thanks to the likes of Thomas Edison and Tesla and, and, and ongoing technological advances across the, the Western world, that he becomes more and more the person in the lab coat that we recognize as a mad scientist on screen, you know, with, with whether it's flashing lights and equipment or, or chemistry and, and bubbling liquids in, in, in test tubes. The very term mad scientist first appears in 1908, right in the middle of the period that I'm most specifically looking at. And it's there over and over again with Dr. Frankenstein, with Dr. Jekyll, but with so many others that uh, are forgotten characters and forgotten films. Very definitely you can see the beginnings of uh, kind of technological fears that could threaten perhaps not one person or even one town, but uh, the kinds of fears that people worried about increasingly as, as World War I began and, and beyond, that one could destroy an entire country, an entire world for that matter. The roots of that are very definitely, I think, in, in, in a lot of the films that I describe. I was talking to Gary D. Rhodes about his book, The Birth of the American Horror Film. It's available from Edinburgh University Press in paperback, hardback, and as an e-book. After the interview, Gary told me he's already working on volume two of his study of the early decades of American horror, which will pick up in 1916 and cover the years up to 1931. That was a year when Dracula catalyzed the whole classic Hollywood horror genre, and also the year when the term horror movie became popular. My thanks to Gary for talking to me on the 4th of July. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can catch up on any interviews you've missed, and, if you feel so inclined, even leave a review. You'll also find the programme on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.